I invite you to bow our hearts with me. Our Lord, we, we have sang about ancient words that are ever true, that change me and change you. Lord, that is our prayer this morning, that as we come to your word, we believe that your word has power. We believe that your word is the means by which you conform us to the image of Christ. We believe that the words that were written thousands of years ago are still alive today. And we believe in the Holy Spirit who takes them and brings them to our hearts. We believe that it is this word that saves and it is this word that sanctifies. We believe that every single person in this room needs your word. Every single one of us this morning needs to hear from you. And Lord, that is not something that I can do or any one of us can do. We can only read your word and speak them. And your spirit needs to bring them to our hearts. In my prayer this morning that the word that you have prepared for us this morning would be received by us. That it would be delivered in the power of the spirit and it would be accepted so that the fruit would be evident as it was in the lives of the Thessalonians. Pray for myself that you would grant me grace to take us through this amazing passage of scripture for your glory, our edification. In the name of Christ, I pray this. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning I want to bring you a message entitled, Gospel Wrapped in Grace. Now if you were to transport yourself back into the first century, into the city of Thessalonica, there would be a lot of things that would surprise you or even shock you, and some things that would be just as they are today. Sure, as you would walk around the city, the technology that you enjoy today would be completely absent. You wouldn't see anyone walking with an iPhone or taking a selfie to post on an Instagram. There would be no cars on the road or airplanes in the sky. There would be no supermarkets, no internet, no Amazon where you can go and buy everything that your soul desires. And we can go on listing myriads of things that would be different from our age here and now. And with all of these differences that we can think of, many of us can start to assume that the culture back then and the people back then were so different that what happened 2,000 years ago has no relevance for us. In fact, this is an argument that is often used against Scripture. Oh, this book, this book was written at least 2,000 years ago. And are you telling me that this book is relevant for me today? Now, I want to be clear, I am not saying that. God is saying that. This book is relevant for you today because the people that lived 2,000 years ago were exactly the same as we are. The God of the Bible 2,000 years ago was the same God we worship today. Now, society and culture, in the time when this book was written, 1 Thessalonians was written, was similar to ours. Because of the dominance of Roman Empire, because of the location of the city, the business was booming, the people were prosperous, and the culture in which they lived brought in people from all over the world into this city. Majority of people, except for the Jews, were pagan to the core. Most of them went to the temples, worshiping all kinds of objects. 
And into this city comes Paul the missionary. Paul the missionary shows up in a matter of weeks. People are converted. The church began. And as Neil read earlier, Paul had to flee because of persecution. Paul fled to a different city to preach the gospel, but the church that was established in that city stayed behind. They were persecuted. They were living amid much opposition, as we'll read in our text. Not only was there persecution that they were false teachers who showed up into the church and started to disparage the church, started to talk bad about Paul because, you know, Paul was just this charlatan. Paul was just this preacher who walks through with flattering words, just trying to accumulate crowd for himself. Paul doesn't care for you. Paul cares for himself, and he's just using you as pawns to build a name for himself. He doesn't care for you. He cares for your money. He does the things that he does. He does for greed. And how do I know that? What happened to Paul when things got tough? He ran away. He fled. If he would have cared for you, he would have stayed behind. That's what these people said. And so to this church, persecuted from the outside, some of the people on the inside are struggling as well. It is to this church that Paul writes this letter. The book is very practical. The book is very applicable. We can read through the book and I can say that the book answers basically one question for us today. And the question is this. How do you convert and pastor the people in a pagan culture where everything you believe is countercultural? When Paul showed up to the city, everything Paul believed and everything Paul taught was countercultural. Other things are not much different today. If you hold to biblical Christianity and you go into the world, you will be countercultural. You will preach things that People do not believe out there. And the question is, how do you convert those people? And how do you pastor those people once they are converted? How do you minister to the people? In the passage that is before us this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul lays out his ministry blueprint. This is how you are to minister to the people in the culture you live today. Now we can ask the question, Why was Paul's ministry so effective? I think all of us would agree that Paul's ministry was effective. And besides the sovereignty of God, I can say that Paul's ministry was effective because of two factors. Number one, Paul declared the gospel. And number two, Paul cared for the people. That's basic point of this passage of scripture. If we can summarize Paul's ministry from first 12 verses of chapter 2, it would be this. Paul's ministry was to please God by declaring the gospel and caring for the people. His ministry was to please God by declaring the gospel and caring for the people. As we unpack these 12 verses this morning, I want to focus on two main ideas. Number one, we're going to talk about motive for gospel ministry. That's first six verses. And then we're going to talk about manner of gospel ministry. Motive, why do you minister? And manner, how do you minister? Join me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, first 12 verses. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, 
But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examined our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship how working night and day so as not to be burdened to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you would walk in the manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We begin with first the motive for gospel ministry. As I mentioned already for our scripture reading, Neil took us back to Acts chapter 17, and that's where the, Luke records the events that surrounded the beginning of the church in the city of Thessalonica. In the first couple of verses of our chapter, Paul gives us his own perspective on what happened there. Now, before we actually look at the verse, I want you to notice a phrase that is repeated again and again and again in this passage. And hopefully you can catch it. If you just go back to chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Chapter 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren. Verse 2, but after we have already been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. Verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Verse 9, for you recall brethren. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. Notice, you know you know, you heard, you are witnesses. Guys, I am not telling you anything new. I am not just writing something to you that I made up. I am telling you what you saw me do. You know this information. You know my heart. Whatever people say about me, whatever you hear, you know this from me. Why? Because I lived among you. I preached among you. I did this. And you are witnesses of what I was able to do in your midst. Thessalonians were intimately acquainted with Paul's ministry, even though he only spent a little time there. Paul was not just a talker, but Paul modeled what he preached. And that's why to the Thessalonians he says, guys, look at my life. You know this. And in verse 1 he says, my ministry among you was not in vain. My ministry bore fruit, and you yourselves are that fruit. Now you recall, 
And in verse 2, Paul reminds them how Paul ended up in Thessalonica. Paul went on a second missionary journey, and he shows up in the city of Philippi. He begins to preach there, and you recall the events. He got arrested. He got put in prison with Silas. Before that, they got beaten. And so Paul is sitting there bleeding with wounds, with bruises, and they're singing songs in the middle of the night. And you remember the earthquake? You remember how the jailer got converted, how he took him home, them home, how he bound up their wounds. And the next day, the city officials, after learning that Paul was a Roman citizen and they had now no right to do to him what they did, they asked him, listen, get out of here. And so Paul flees. Paul leaves. And Paul goes into Thessalonica, and this is where he started preaching the gospel. Now, have been endured, notice in verse 2 he says, but we have already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. Now think about this. If that was you, and you went on a missionary journey, think about it this way. We take a preacher from our church, and we decide to engage in missions, and we send him to South America. We plan his journey and we say, you're going to this city and after this city, you're going to that city and after that, you're going to that. And we have it all lined up. And he goes into the first city and he begins to preach the gospel there. He begins to preach the gospel and the mob attacks him. That's someone you know, someone from this church. The mob attacks him. They beat him. A few days later, we found out that the guy barely made it out alive. Question, what are we going to do? I mean, some of us would say, well, we need to bring him home. We need to bring him home and let him heal up. I mean, it's not, it's not wise to take a bleeding and hurting guy and just send him on and continue preaching the gospel somewhere. What would we do? Now, if you were that preacher, what would you do? Would you say, well, that was enough. You know, I, I tried. I did my best. Now, what did Paul do? That is exactly what happened to Paul. Now, think about it. What does a guy look like when he has endured what Paul endured? In Acts chapter 16, when Paul is describing what happened to Paul, where Luke is describing what happened to Paul, it says here, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Now, we often just skip this over, but think about it. What does the guy who has been beaten with rods look like? I mean, if you watched news a couple weeks ago in Portland, there was a mob who beat, beat people with rods. And if you saw pictures or videos, they were not pretty. Someone who's been beaten with a bat does not look good. And that was Paul. And he just got thrown into the prison. And how did he respond? Notice our verse 2, he says, But after we had suffered and been mistreated, as you know, we decided to go home and heal up. Is that what it says? No. We had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. What does Paul say? Well, they don't want me here. I'm going somewhere else. Paul got up and beaten, went to the next city, and he comes into Thessalonica. And it's not like... Oh, it was all beautiful in Thessalonica. That was a resort city where you preached the gospel. No, he said, we spoke the gospel to you amid much opposition. There wasn't much relief in Thessalonica, as you heard from Acts chapter 17. It wasn't much different. But Paul says here, we had boldness in our God. It wasn't because Paul was a superman. 
It wasn't because Paul was all that. No, he says it was God who gave us boldness. It was God who gave us courage to get up the next day, flee to the next city, and preach the gospel to them. Somebody said that Paul could have saved a lot of trouble for himself and for others if he would have just showed up to the next city and checked himself in a local jail because that's where he would end up anyway. Because no matter where he went, he caused trouble. He caused trouble, why? Because he declared the gospel of God. He declared the gospel of God with all boldness. And we've got to ask the question, why? Paul, what is motivating you to do what you do? How can you keep going? How can you keep going when people do this to you? And that's why in the next verses, at least four verses, Paul gives us his motivation for ministry. You see, if you're motivated by comfort in ministry, you won't last too long. If you're motivated by applause from people, you won't last too long. If you're motivated by greed, you won't last too long. Because if what happened to Paul happens to you, you would immediately go home and take a vacation. And we ask the question, Paul, how could you keep going year after year after year? Now as we look at Paul's motivation for ministry, he gives us the negative side where he says, I am not motivated by this, but I am motivated by that. And partly it is Paul's defense against people who accused him of doing ministry for wrong reasons, and partly it is for Paul to say, listen, this is why I am doing what I'm doing. So first, I'm going to give you six reasons why Paul is not in ministry. These are not motivations for ministry. And Paul lists them here in verses 2 through 6, 3 through 6. Let's read them. He says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we see glory for men either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Number one, Paul says, we are not motivated by error. We are not motivated by error. See, our teaching, what we are declaring to you is not a heretical doctrine. Why? Because false teachers would come in and they would say, listen, we have Old Testament. God's been speaking to us for the last 1,400 years in our Bibles. And what Paul is preaching right now is not according to the truth. So therefore, Paul is preaching heresy to you. Paul is preaching false doctrine to you. And Paul says, listen, I'm not advocating heresy. He says, I am not bringing error to you, our exhortation. What we are declaring to you, what we are preaching to you, it does not come from error. We have a divine revelation. The Lord has given me what I ought to speak to you, and I'm not preaching false doctrine to you. You know, there are some people who have an idea that they want to promote, and no matter what they go, no matter what they say, they're always promoting their thing, whether it's true or right, or maybe it is false, or maybe it is true. And Paul says, we are not promoting heresy. We are not promoting error. Number two, we are not motivated by impurity. If error had to do with their teaching, impurity had to do with their conduct. You see, Paul was not in ministry for personal gain or to satisfy his lusts. You see, when we think of preachers today, when you think about church today or elders or whoever, you associate church leaders with morality. 
You associate religion with pure living. You tend to do that. But you see, in Paul's day, it wasn't necessarily so. Because if you looked at religious life of people in that society, there was much sensual, sexual activity that it was associated with worship. And many of the guys who walked around as preachers, itinerant preachers who walked from city to city, they would do so in order to satisfy themselves, in order to build their own crowds. And Paul says, listen, I am not in this to satisfy myself. I am not in this to build a crowd for myself. My teaching is pure. My life is pure. And that's why he says we are not motivated by impurity. Number three, we are not motivated by trickery. Because he says here, he says, in verse three, we're not, it doesn't come from error. It doesn't come from impurity. It does not come from deceit, by way of deceit. Listen, we are not actors. We are not actors who are trying to sell you our gig. We show up into the city and we just put on this beautiful show and behind it there is no life. We're not trying to tr trick you to follow us. Why? Because we are preaching true doctrine to you. We are preaching the truth and the gospel to you. We're not trying to bait you with something that is not true. Perhaps some people accuse Paul of that. Number four, we are not motivated by man-pleasing. Look at verse four. He says, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Paul's message was never shaped by the opinion of men. Perhaps the strongest indication of this truth is found in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians where false teachers infiltrated the church and perverted the gospel. And Paul is writing to these churches, and in chapter 1, verse 9, verse 8, he says the following. He says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Let him go to hell. That's what he's saying. If someone is preaching to you not what I preached to you, go to hell. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed, go to hell. For, I am not see for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a bondservant of God. That is not a very appealing message. You don't believe what I say, well, go to hell. That's not very man-pleasing, man-centered. Listen, we do not determine what we preach. Paul did not determine what he preached. Paul was handed a message. And as a herald of the king, he was to declare that message. You have no right to alter it. You have no right to change it. You have no right to add to it. You have no right to subtract to it because some people don't like it or some people like to hear something else. Paul says, when I go out there and I preach, when I showed up to your city, I preached you a message that was countercultural. I preached you a truth that you did not like. And I preached to you not because you like them. We don't please men with our preaching. We don't please men with our message because our message has been granted to us. However, the same Paul who said, I am not a man pleaser, wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, where he says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And listen to this, just as I also 
please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Paul, what happened to you? I thought you were not a men pleaser. And now you're saying, I please all men in all things. Here's the difference. And the difference is this. If the truth that you preach offends people, that is not your problem. But if you offend people while you preach the truth, that is a problem. If you believe abortion is murder, you are absolutely correct. But if you create an offensive sign and you stand before Planned Parenthood Clinic and you see a woman going in for abortion and you start yelling and screaming at her because she's a murderer who will burn in hell, you're the problem. You see, what's offensive is not your message, but you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with a different thing. Paul deals with us limiting our freedoms and taking ourselves as obstacles out of the way so that people would be able to hear the truth we proclaim. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, listen, I sacrifice my freedom so that I would not become a stumbling block to unbelievers who need to be converted and to believers who need to grow. Listen, if I am an obstacle for you to hear the truth, I'm the problem. If you are offended by what I'm saying and that is in the text, that's not my problem. Your problem is with God. But you see, how we deliver the message, how we speak has an effect on what we speak. And so in that sense, Paul says, listen, I try to eliminate every obstacle. I try to eliminate every barrier so I can deliver the message that God has granted to me. And if people will reject that message, so be it. But I will not stand in the way and prevent people from accepting that message by being foolish or flaunting my liberties. Don't try to please man by altering the message of the truth. But do everything in your power not to become that stumbling block so that the unbelievers would hear the truth and be converted and the believers would hear the truth and grow in grace. We are not men pleasers, but we are trying to please man. Number five, we are not motivated by greed. In verse five, Paul says, nor with pretext for greed. And I'm gonna call God as witness that I am telling you the truth. You see, apparently, in the first century, to be a preacher, to travel from city to city was a lucrative position. Otherwise, it would make no sense. All the warnings against greed would make no sense. So when Paul says that I am not driven by greed, he's saying, I did not show up to your town and made a collection from you guys so you guys could give me some money so I can buy a nicer plane or a nicer house or nicer whatever. That's not why I preach the gospel. I am not motivated by greed. In fact, later on in this passage, he says, instead of me taking from you, I work night and day so that I can provide for you rather than taking from you. And I'm going to take a note because God knows my heart. God is witness that I am not doing this for money. And finally, we are not motivated by fame. In verse 6, he says, nor do we see glory from men, either from you or from others. We are not in ministry to build name for ourselves. We are not in ministry to build a name for our church. We are not in ministry for applause or recognition. It's amazing that Paul, a guy who wrote more than half of the New Testament, a guy who started all these churches, he never forgot who he was. 
And coming to the end of his life and the final years of his life, writing to Timothy, he would say things like this. Listen, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he adds this, among whom I am the foremost. I am not the great missionary. I am not the great apostle. I am not the great church planter. I am the foremost of sinners. And listen, if the church pleases to use me, if the Lord chooses to please, uh, chooses to use you, it is not because you are so awesome and the Lord's like, man, I'm so happy you're on my team. No, because God takes sinners and God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. That's what he's able to do. And the Lord is able to take anybody who has a motivation like Paul here and he's able to build his ministry. Why? Because they have a right motivation. So Paul, if you are not motivated by error or impurity or trickery or men-pleasing or greed or fame, what are you motivated by? The answer is in verse 4. Here's what I'm motivated by, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing man, but God who examines our hearts. Listen, there is a sharp contrast here between verses 3 and verses 4. Listen, first of all, we do not do what we do because of who we are. We have been chosen by God. We have been approved by God. God has determined that I would be what I would be. In Paul's case, Paul says, God has determined before I was even born that I would be a missionary to the Gentiles. We have been approved by God. As I said, King's Herald has a job to deliver the message of the king. And he doesn't determine what he's going to say, but he simply goes off and he announces what the king declared. And Paul says, I am that herald. I am that herald when I was given the message and I'm going there and I'm just going to simply declare to you the good news. Declare to you the gospel of God. The good news. Listen, it is a good news that Paul declared. Literally, that's what the gospel means. It is a good news. It is a good news that sinners who have sinned against infinitely holy God, who are worthy of his death, and who will spend eternity in hell if they don't believe in Christ, it is a good news to tell them that Jesus Christ is offering you gift of salvation freely for simply believing. That is a good news. And so he says here, we have been entrusted with this because the Lord has entrusted the, this good news to us. We have no option not to speak. Even when we have been mistreated, even when we have been afflicted, beaten, bleeding, fill in the blank. We have no option not to speak. Now notice, Paul says what motivates us in ministry is that we would please God. That we would be pleasing to God. You see, if we wanted to please men we would have to alter the message. Because the gospel in and of itself is not very appealing to man. Just think about it. You're going to an unbeliever and you're telling him, God is holy and you are a sinner. Because God is holy, he demands justice. God is going to judge you. And the wages of what you have done is death. Death physical? Death eternal. And you are going to be damned by God because nothing you can do can please him. If you want to build someone's self-esteem, that's not the message you preach to them. 
You might want to tell them that they're pretty good. You might want to tell them that they, they made a mistake here and there and that they, there's something that they can do. No, but if you actually preach the message of the gospel, that is offensive to people. Telling you that you got cancer and you can't do nothing and you're going to die. How helpful is that? But the gospel says that, yes, you have cancer, but here's an offer. You believe in Christ, and because of what he has done, you are going to receive salvation. You are going to be delivered from the cancer that you have. But in and of itself, the gospel is offensive. And Paul says, when I go and I preach the gospel, yes, I know it offends people. Yes, I know people won't want to hear it. Yes, I know people won't want to believe it. But that doesn't make me change the gospel. Why? Because I got a cure for people. And what is pleasing to God is that I preach exactly this message. And it is through this message that God is going to save people. And by the way, I am going to give an account for what I preach and how I preach it. I am going to stand. God examines my heart. God knows my heart. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account for how faithful I was to the message that God has given to me. And my goal in life is one. I want to please God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul summarizes it this way. He says, therefore we also have it as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Steve Lawson said, if you please God, it doesn't matter whom you displease. But if you displease God, it doesn't matter whom you please. Let me ask you, what motivates you in life? What motivates you in ministry? If you are a believer, just like Paul, you have been entrusted with the message that you are to declare. And just like Paul, you are going to stand before God and he is going to examine your heart and you will have to give an account. Can you say that in whatever I say and in whatever I do, my aim is to be pleasing to God, regardless of the cost. Can you say that? If you can, then you are in the same league as Paul. If you can't, you have work to do. Why was Paul's ministry effective? Because number one, his motivation was to please God in all things. Now consider secondly, Paul's manner of gospel ministry. Yes, that was his aim. Yes, that's what he was trying to do. But how exactly did he do it? This is where we come to verses 7 through 12. And here we ask these questions. What did Paul's ministry actually look like? How did Paul minister to the people? If his aim was just to please God, how did he come across to the people so that his ministry was effective? In the time that I have left... I want you to see from this passage two portraits that Paul paints for us in verses 7 through 12. Paul borrows the image of a beautiful godly family. And he gives a portrait of a mother and he gives a portrait of a father to demonstrate what his ministry was like among the people in Thessalonica. Now I know the many in this room will be able to relate to what Paul is saying in these verses. Because you grew up in a normal and healthy home. But I also know that for some people, when you talk to them about their father or their mother, their heart is not filled with, you know, warm and cozy feelings. Because they didn't grow up like you did. 
And if this is you, that in this passage, Paul is not talking about your dad. He's not talking about your mom. Now think about it. If you can imagine the godliest mother, maybe the mother that you had, or the mother that you see in the church, or the mother that you want to be to your children, that's the mother Paul is talking about. If you can imagine the godliest father that perhaps you had, or perhaps you've witnessed someone in this church or somewhere else, or the kind of father that you want to be to your children, that's the father Paul is talking about here. And that's the image that Paul borrows to demonstrate what his ministry was like toward the people in Thessalonica. Now, what is so beautiful about this text that Paul combines two things that we so often tend to separate. In our verse, in verse 6, Paul says that even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Now, regardless of how much authority you have, regardless of the position that you hold, even if you have been appointed by God into that position, it does not give you a right to act like a bull in the china shop. You have no right to do that. You have no right to run over people. You have no right to just simply stand there and impose yourself as if you're something and everybody is nothing. Paul says we could have showed up as apostles. And as apostles, we have a lot of authority. We wouldn't just, you know, play around games with you. Try no, he said we should have showed up to you and says, hey, listen, I'm from God. God told me, you do this or go to hell. I could have done that. I could have asserted my authority, but I didn't. But I didn't. And that's why Paul says, listen, we have all the authority in the world to command you to do what you ought to do. But as a manner of my ministry, this is how I serve. And you want to understand? And you want to model me? Because that's what you guys were doing in chapter 1. And that's what you're supposed to do as believers. You're supposed to look to Christ and model Christ. You're supposed to look to godly men in your life and model their ministry. He says, you want to model your ministry after godliness? You want to model your ministry after someone who was effective? Model it after me. And how did I minister to people? Two portraits. Number one, consider the portrait of a mother. Look at verse 7. He says, but we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. Now again, don't skip over this. I mean, notice the language that Paul employs here. He says, we proved to be gentle among you. We had so fond an affection for you. You have become very dear to us. Now look at the pronouns in this verse. He says, we proved to be gentle among you. Having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. And we asked the question, who's you in this text? Are these, you know, beautiful, cuddly little babies that you just want to hug and love on? Is that what Paul's talking about? No. No. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about idolaters. If you go back to previous chapter, verse 9, he says, You turn to God from worshiping idols. 
When I showed up, when I showed up to Thessalonica, it wasn't like this. This was this lovely group of people, this beautiful crowd that I just wanted to love on, and they just wanted to love on me. No, these guys were pagan, hated God, hated things of God. And Paul says, "When I showed up to you, I proved to be gentle among you." If you were to travel to Thailand, for example, you show up to Thailand and. Even today, there are pagan temples there where myriads of people walk in day in and day out and bow before statues or images. Now, if you were to go there, walk around for a day or two, would you then sit down and write an email home and say, listen, these people have become very dear to me. Their souls have become very dear to me. Now, we don't have to go that far. Just go to San Francisco, for example. You drive into a district where it seems that they're celebrating Noahic Covenant all over again. And you look around and you see all those people. How do you respond? What does your heart feel toward those people? Are they Despicable, dirty, unclean, pollute the society, have bad influence on your children? Or is it like Paul, who says their souls have become very dear to me? You know, I examine my own heart, and you examine your, yourself. Do we talk like that about unbelievers? Do we talk like that about people who are on the way to hell? And Paul showed up into this pagan city, and he says, listen, you know why I minister to you? And you know why I ministered the way I ministered to you? Why? Because you guys have become very dear to us. Because I saw you not as a pagan who is worshiping wood or stick or something else, but I saw you as a man made in the image of God who will spend eternity in hell unless you believe in Christ. Do we view people like that? Or do we view them as someone who is just infringing on our society and polluting our holy circle here, holy huddle? Is that what they're doing? Paul says, we showed up to you and we ministered to you because you have become very dear to us. Now, we have many mothers in this room. Many mothers who know what it's like to care for their babies. And you all know, that babies don't always look and act as they do on Sunday for two hours, right? You know that. I like how Vody Buckham said that one of the reasons why God makes children so small is so that they don't kill you. I mean, can you imagine a baby with their selfishness, yelling and screaming, but with the strength and the body of a grown man? They kill you. That's why he makes them so small. And he adds that he makes them so cute so that you don't kill them. (laughs) You see, when you're caring for the baby, you're willing to stay up late. You're willing to sacrifice your health, your strength, your resources, your everything. Why? 
because that baby is very dear to your heart. You don't say, listen, I've done it three nights in a row. I'm sorry, I'm done. You don't say that. Why? Because that's your baby. And Paul likens his ministry to these people here, and he likens it to a mother who tenderly cares for her own children. And notice these were not just words. Just like mothers stay up all night caring for their sick babies, he says in verse 9, having so fond an affection for you, we were well, ple- well pleased, verse 8, to impart to you not only the gospel. In verse 9 he says, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to become burdened to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Listen, you recall You know this to be true. You know this to be fact. We did not just talk the talk, but we walked the walk. We worked hard day and night, not only to speak the gospel to you, but also to demonstrate the gospel to you. And he's doing that. Why? Because later on, as we get to the book of Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, there were people in the church who were flat out lazy, who didn't want to work, who were undisciplined, Paul calls them. And Paul is inserting this here. He says, guys, look at us. Look at our example. You should have provided for us, but we provided for you. We stayed up all night caring so that we can have means to support ourselves so that we may preach the gospel to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 through 10, Paul writes this. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be burdened to any of you. Not because we do not have this right, but in order to offer ourselves as model for you so that you would would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. We work hard to provide for ourselves and to set pattern for you. As a mother stays up all night to care for her children, Paul says we labored hard to care for you as for our children. In the midst of this all, don't miss this point. The primary way in which Paul showed care for these people is by proclaiming the gospel to them. A couple times, He says this in verse 8, for example, he says, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves. Our first and foremost priority was to deliver to you the gospel of God. And we've done that by imparting ourselves to you. In verse 9, he says, How work night and day so as not to become burdened to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You see? You can meet every physical, emotional, material need. But unless you preach the gospel of God, you do not care for people. Why? Because meeting their temporary needs will only supply them in this life. But without the gospel of God, they will be doomed for eternity. Paul says, my ministry was first and foremost was to impart to you the gospel of God, to proclaim to you the truth of God. And that's how I did it. So the first portrait that we see here that defines the manner of Paul's ministry is that of a mother. 
The second portrait is the daughter of a father. Look at verse 10. He says, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. I would remind particularly the fathers and everyone else by extension that you lead by your example before you lead by your words. You see, we have two verses that describe this thing he calls just as a father would. And in verse 10, he focuses on the example that he said. And in verse 11, he gives us the words that he spoke. You see, you can speak all the words in the world, but unless your words are not backed up by your action, your kids won't believe him. A lot of things that children pick up, they are not taught, but they're caught. They watch you, they mimic you, they imitate you. And if your message contradicts your life, they will go with your life. Because anybody can talk the talk, but not anybody can walk the walk. So Paul says, first of all, when we came to you, we first of all, we set an example for you. Just two thoughts I want you to notice here. The how and the what. The how. How did we behave toward you? Paul gives three characteristics. Paul says here in verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. You know this. We lived among you. And so is God. How? Number one, devoutly. ESV, it says how holy. Same word. If you think about holy walk, you think about separated unto God. Something that is holy is set apart for a special purpose. Things in the temple were separated unto God. They were holy. And he says, you look at our conduct, and we, first of all, walked in holiness. Second, he says, how uprightly. Yes, we were separated unto God, but we behave righteously toward you. God has given us his standard. And if you were to take the truth of God's word, and you were to compare it to our life, those things would match. We walked righteously. We walked according to the standard that you have in the word. And finally, he says, we walked blamelessly. We were above reproach. You can throw things at us, but they won't stick to us. That's what he's saying. And he says, no matter what people tell you about us, you saw how we lived among you. We walked in holiness before God, in righteousness before you, and blamelessly that no one can accuse us of anything. People can accuse us, but those accusations will not stick. And by the way, I call God as witness. I'm going to take my hand. I'm going to put it on my Bible. I'm going to say, listen, this is how I live. Holy, uprightly, and blamelessly. Now that's an example. That's an example if all of us could do that and look at our children and say that to them. Look at me, look at how I live, look at how I walk and imitate my example. And that's the first thing. He says, as a father, I showed you, I demonstrated for you. But it's not, you know, it's not just showing, it's also saying. Because the second thing we have here, what did Paul do in this matter? He says, how did we do it? Yes, we walk devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly. But what were we doing? What were we doing? He lists three things. Three things. He says, we were exhorting you. Exhorting you. To exhort someone is to come alongside of someone and to instruct them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
That's what the word of God does. It exhorts us. It trains us. It demonstrates. It teaches us. That's what Paul says. We came alongside of you where you were, however broken and messed up you were. We came to your level and we were exhorting you. And then second thing he says, we were encouraging you. You see, what is growth? Growth is failing and trying again. That's where growth comes from. Failing and trying again. You know, with your kids, you do something for the first time. And they fail. And what do you need to do? You need to comfort them and you need to encourage them. If you come alongside of them and say, I'm sorry, you are a miserable failure. Is it going to help? No. Paul says, listen, we instructed you. We told you how you ought to live. And then when you started walking, you started falling. We came alongside of you and we encouraged you. We built you up. We give you strength. We comforted you. We pointed you back to the gospel. We pointed you back to Christ. We encouraged you to help. So we exhort you. We encourage you. And then he says, we were imploring you. We were warning you. We were warning you because a job of a father, a responsibility, is not just to teach, is not just to encourage, but it is to warn. It is to warn and to say that if you do not heed my words, if you do not follow what I'm telling you, there are consequences to that. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is what we're doing. This, is, this was my ministry. It was to teach you, to come alongside of you and encourage you, build you up, and at the same time to warn you that if you disregard my words, you're going to pay the consequences. That was my ministry. That's what a father does. We set example, we train, encourage, and we implore you. For what reason? What is the goal of all this? Verse 12. So that you would walk in the manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Why? So that every single one of you can actually live out the gospel that we have preached to you and that you have claimed to receive. That's what he's saying. If you say that I am a believer, I believe in the gospel, then the gospel demands certain things from you. And the job of a leader in this case, of a pastor or of a father is to come alongside of you and say, listen, this is where we're aiming. This is what we want to be like. We want to be like Christ. And when you fail, you point them back to the gospel because ultimately you're not saved because you are perfect and you never sin and you never fail. No, you are saved because of the righteous life of Christ and the work of Christ on your behalf. But you're continually encouraging people to transform and to become more like Christ. So why was Paul's ministry so effective? You can summarize it, as I said in the beginning from these verses. Paul's ministry was so effective because his aim was to please God by declaring the gospel of God and caring for the people. You see, you can't separate those. If you just walk around saying, you know, I'm, I'm just a preacher. I'm just giving a message. I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to tell you and do whatever you want and I don't care for you. No. You know, God could use even that now, now that I think about it. There was one preacher in the Bible who could care less about the people. Remember his name? Jonah. Jonah. Showed up, 40 days, and you'll be destroyed. And I'm just waiting for that. Because after he finished preaching for 40 days, he walked outside the city, put up his lawn chair, and was sitting there and waiting for God to pour down wrath. That's what he was doing. He didn't care. Now, God could save that. God is sovereign over salvation of people. He can do anything and everything. But God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility. And this is what Paul is saying here. Yes, I know I have been appointed. 
Yes, I know I have been given this ministry, but I ought to do it in a proper manner so that I can benefit the people to whom I minister. So how can you and I individually and we as a church be just as effective as Paul? We can if we aim to please God by declaring the gospel and being faithful to the message that he entrusted to us. And we do so with care and compassion for the people to whom we minister. May God grant grace to each one of us to do that. Not for our own glory, but for God's glory and the salvation of sinners and sanctification of believers. Bow your hearts with me. Our Lord, we are thankful that you have set an example for us because you were gentle with people. Yes, you were stern with the truth. We have Paul who spoke the word and at the same time had that caring heart for the people. Lord, I pray that these characteristics would mark us, that we would be bold with the truth and speak it regardless of the cost and at the same time be gentle compassion, caring, so that you would be pleased to use us for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.